everyone, and welcome back to episode two of Pigskins and Nylon. I'm Wally Lukashinsky, and I'm joined once again by my great friends and co-hosts, Casey Mock and Hayden Ramsey. Let's say hello to the boys. We said hi to Casey last week first, so let's mix it up a little bit. Hayden, how's Northwest Ohio and Arcadia baseball treating you, man? Well, first of all, Northwest Ohio sucks because we just got three inches of snow in the middle, almost at the end of April. It's crazy. And the worst part of it all is that we didn't even get a two-hour delay. I was so upset by that. Baseball. Did it, did it stick up there? So it's, it stuck to, like, the grass, but just not the roads. The roads were just perfect. So I was kind of upset. Yeah, that's um, on here, too. <laughs> so baseball just got back from a game today. We played over in Tiffin. We got destroyed. It, it's unfortunate. It's it's literally the same thing every single game. Like you can only say the same thing so many times. We've tried yelling, being hard on them. We've tried the soft approach. You know, you can only say the same thing so many times before it's just it's so frustrating. So we lost twelve to two today. Not good in five in five innings. It was twelve to zero. But that's always the best, though, man. If, yeah, if yeah. We I got done a little early. We could come, yes, come sir. do the podcast. And to top my night off so far, my wife brought me Chipotle, and I will never ever turn down a bowl of Chipotle. Well, that's great to hear, man. We're gonna throw it over to our other co-host to see how he's doing today, Casey. Down in Columbus, you're finishing up your degree right now. How's things been going over there? Oh, doing all right, man. Disappointing loss Saturday. To Tiffin, 31-16, but it's all good. It was good seeing Ohio State back on the field for their spring game. I was able to watch that for a little bit. But, you know, other than that, man, I got all my schoolwork done this week, so I'm sitting pretty. How are things going for you, Wally? Things are going pretty well over here on this end. I was telling you guys before the show, but I got to go on a radio station today with one of my former classmates, from Ohio Media School up in Cleveland, 1490 WERE. And I got to drop a little bit of a plug for us here. So hopefully we get some residuals from that. Good things coming, hopefully. It's going to be a lot of fun. I, You guys got to hear the reaction from the first one. It's been fun to get not only friends and family engaged, but even a few other people early on. It's going to take time to grow. But it's been a blast so far. We're going to stay out there on social media. So make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at P and N pod P and N pod. We'll be throwing out a lot of stuff there. Maybe too, with a little bit of a pull here as we go into our first segment, which we need you guys to, we're not the most creative name guys here. If you can think of a segment name for this, we'd be all open for it, but I'm going to open it up real quick just with that. So we teased it at the end of episode one. We're going to open up today's show with a kind of ranking system between the three of us. Best five and worst five atmospheres for Big Ten football. And I think we're going to start here. Ooh, I don't know which one. Do you want to have a hand up? Who wants to start here for best atmospheres? I know it's going to be probably Illinois. Casey looks like he's ready to go first. We've seen both of you guys talk about Memorial Stadium. So number one's got to be clear and obvious, right, Casey? Yeah, so I kind of broke this down into two different categories here. So the first category was the best stadium atmosphere regardless of the game, taking into consideration average attendance, sellouts, and just overall stadium feel. 
The second list I made was considering the stadium atmosphere for big games or night games, which we all know have a completely different feel. So do you want me to start at the worst? Do you want to do worst first? I think honestly, that's probably better. We can build up that way. Get the negative out first. All right. Yeah, sounds good. So started at number five, five being not the worst, one being the worst. I've got Purdue. You know, honestly, you can really interchange a lot of these, except for except for number one, as we hit on last week. I think it's <laughs> going to be pretty obvious. But number five, Purdue, you know, unless there's a Michigan-Ohio State going to that stadium, it's just not – it's not the best place to play. Same with Northwestern, who's my number four team. That honestly, though, I, I would I'm I'm gonna make a switch there. I'm gonna put Northwestern at five because I usually only watch games at Northwestern if they deal with Michigan or Ohio State, and it's not terrible when when those two teams are there. Maryland is number three. I just even when Michigan Ohio State play at Maryland, it just seems boring as hell. Same with Rutgers, who's my number two. Although I think Shiano's got, you know, as we talked about last week, I think Shiano's building something there that they could probably make their way up to like number five after this year. And then number one's Illinois, man. We talked about it last week. They're just not a not a great place to play, in my opinion. But who knows? Maybe Bielema can turn it around. We're going to toss it over actually to Hayden here. Let's hear his bottom five. I imagine it's going to be very much similar. I think all three of our lists are going to be pretty similar here on the bottom. But let's hear from you. Start at five. Like Casey said, this is five is better in this case. One means you are the ugly number 14 in the division or in the conference as a whole. So let's hear from you. Let's start five and go down. All right. I kind of did mine similar to Casey, but I have Ohio State reasons as to why I hate some of these places to go. Now, my number five is going to be Purdue. And I would, I, I think I would have them more towards my, is it the bottom or the top of my list? It'd be the bottom of my list, right? Purdue, because Ohio State played the worst game I have ever watched in my entire life at Purdue. And that will forever haunt me for the rest of my life. Actually, all three of us, we watched that game together. I just, just remembered that. That was. That was the night of Lawrence Carr. This is a little side story. Wally absolutely just destroyed Lauren's. Lauren is Casey's girlfriend. Absolutely destroyed her car door on a curb. It, the curb was too high. He swung the door open. Just like scraped the whole body. Like just like all the way across the ground. And then it wouldn't come back. So we're like prying on the door to try and get it. It was a nightmare. It was fitting for the game that was played that day. So Purdue's my number five. Number four is going to be Maryland. And Casey said this too, like, I think one through four on my worst list could be interchangeable. These are all pretty, pretty bad places to play. Four is Maryland. It just feels so boring. Ohio State also played a horrible game there where they won by like a point and Maryland probably should have scored a two-point conversion to win the game. So that was a disaster. Number three is Rutgers. And every time I think of Rutgers, I feel so bad for those poor old guys who fire the cannons off. And it's like every time they score or something. And I I think Ohio State was winning like 63 to nothing. And Rutgers scored with, with like 30 seconds, like a minute left or something. 
and those guys are firing the yeah i just feel so bad for them two is northwestern i don't know that stadium is so small and i just feel like i i really feel like crazy things can happen at northwestern which maybe could make the case that they should be like not in the top or in my bottom five because I don't know, just things that happen. But I don't r- recall them ever winning a, a big game at home. Like, they played Michigan really close, what, two years ago maybe? And, like, Michigan was losing the whole game, but they ended up coming back and winning. I just – I've never seen Northwestern get it done at home, I don't think, against, like, a, a big, big-time game. And number yeah, one like – I 17 nothing at halftime that game. That was – so Ohio State was playing Penn State. I was actually in Pittsburgh watching that. No, I think I was. I was in Pittsburgh watching that, and we had that game on a computer, and then it like ran into the Ohio State game, so we were trying to watch both. Yeah, that Northwestern Michigan game was ugly. My number one, we talked about this all week, Illinois, especially a noon kick. That's 11 a.m. local time. Those winds blowing 30 mile an hour in your face. That's not a fun place. I just can't imagine that would be fun at all. For any visiting team going there, I feel like it'd be a nightmare. That's my bottom five. Wally, I guess we're on to you, buddy. Yeah, this is great, too, just because I think all three of us had different metrics on how we did this. And I kind of fell in the middle between you two. Casey, you had more of the objective, smart way to go in. And I also had the Hayden, the homerism takes as well in mind a little bit. I tried to remove them as much as I could. And that's why five and six was tough because I was stuck between Northwestern, Ryan Field, and Ross Aid of Purdue, I really didn't know what to do because Ross Aid has been a house of horrors for Ohio State for 20 years, whereas Ryan Field, you have to go with a machete. It feels like an African safari when you get onto that field. It's like knee-high grass. It feels like everyone, 4-4 speed is like 4-8 speed all of a sudden, which always was fun to me because then that meant their slow guys were slower too, but that somehow was lost in translation. I don't get it. But I went with five. I went with Ross Aid because when it wasn't an Ohio State or a Michigan there, I feel like they don't exactly defend home turf like you would like to see. It's kind of a lesser environment where a noon game at Ross Aid, and you you see the teams like Indiana, Illinois, they'll go in there, beat them inexplicably at times, and that's frustrating. So I had Ross Aid five, even though they have that giant drum, which is wild, and I never understand the purpose of it, but whatever. Number four for me was Capital One Field with Maryland. Maryland's another one you brought up, Hayden, the, the near loss Ohio State had a couple of years ago there. It's another one of those environments. I feel like the fans are there more or less just for the like the fun of going to a college football game. It's less about the actual on field. It never felt like that's that much of a scary place to walk in and try to win a football game. Occasionally you have those weird mix haps like that game, but on the most part, Maryland doesn't do anything for me. Now, this one was, I didn't hear either of you say it, Memorial Stadium for Indiana. The reason I put them here is they built that stadium far too big for the fans they can support. So even with the mega fans of Michigan, Ohio State, Wisconsin, whatever, going in there, even on those like crazy games, even at a night game, it looks like it's like 75% filled. So even when it is a loud or a good environment, it just kind of leaves a little bit to be desired as a fan. Whenever I can have an entire road to myself in Ohio State, Michigan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is at your building, it makes me wonder how good of an environment it really is 
Not to mention, it doesn't feel like they win those games very often. I mean, they haven't beaten Ohio State since like the 80s. They what only recently beat Michigan or Penn State. I'm sorry. They only beat recently beat Penn State there the opening game this last year in a game that looked like he was down going into the end zone with Penn State. Who knows how their season turns out if they win that game. But then I'll switch it over to two. I'm going to play devil's advocate for you guys. I'm going to give a little love to Illinois. You have the 13th best environment and atmosphere because it is sometimes hard to get up to play at Illinois on an 11 o'clock game in Champaign. The miserable wind. There's like no one there. In a weird way, it's their own kind of doomsday environment. Which makes it, it's not fun for necessarily a fan as much. But when I went to one, Rutgers, I think this is a little bit of recency bias for me. Purely because of how poor they have been of late. That there's just nothing there for the fans to get excited about. They're literally just there. I don't know why they go good for the students that are able to go or choose to go. But for me, I felt like Rutgers and Illinois could have been more interchangeable. And I didn't want to just pile on, I guess, to this Illinois hate that we've given in two episodes so far. So before we even go to our top five, I'm going to make us do a fun exercise. I want you two to say something nice about Illinois football. I believe um, it was what, 2007 they were good, right? 2007? That's right. That's, That's a good thing, right? There you go. That was nice. That was nice. They had a good team in 2007. Hayden, say something nice about Illinois football. I'll say two things nice. Ready? I love Juice Williams. And I think they made a pretty good coaching hire. I don't know. I think that's it, though. I, would, I, don't, I can't really say anything nice other than that. I'll say one thing nice. The matte orange helmets, they're pretty cool, guys. So that's something that you can hang on to. Those are uh, sweet. Yeah. Yeah, those are sweet. All right, well, there you go. That was saying something nice about Illinois. We just did it right there. That's great. Now, we went to Casey's top five first, so I'm going to go to Hayden here. I want to hear yours. Start from five, work your way down, and give us ultimately your best. Maybe people are going to be surprised with your top one, top two. I saw that, and I was a little surprised for you, so let's hear it from you. Work your way down five to one. All right, number five, and I feel like I'm going to catch some flag for this, but this is from a personal experience. My number five is Michigan. I've been to one game at Michigan, and and I know this could really impact. They played Iowa, I think, two years ago, and it was oh, a miserable, boring game. I think Michigan won like 17-14 or something like that. The crowd never seemed into it at all. It never got like crazy loud. The game was super boring. And the thing to top it off the most is they didn't sell alcohol. Like, I was, like, shocked by that. I I couldn't believe it. First of all, the amount of money that they're missing out on, I would have to imagine, is a lot. And from a guy who didn't really have a rooting interest, I mean, I didn't really, but I kind of wanted Michigan to lose like I always do. It may, Like, having a couple beers would have been a way better experience, I think. Number four. That game was 10 to, that game was 10 to 3, by the way. Even worse. Yeah, even worse. (laughs) Yeah. So I think my experience is a little, you know, swayed by that. And I need to give it another shot because, shit, I mean, it is pretty big. 112,000, right? Something like that. 113,000. Something along those lines. 
113 on a good day, 111 on a bad. Yeah. Anyway, number four, I have Kinnick. That is also swayed by Ohio State getting stomped out by Iowa. That game hurt a lot. I I had, of course, I was watching that game with Casey. Well, kind of with Casey, but I was kind of zoned out halfway through. But the wave to the hospital, I think, is amazing. I think that's really, really cool. And that's like a newer thing, right? Like within the last five years. So I yeah, think I that's think so. really cool. Hey, do you remember how that game started in 2017? Yeah, through a pick six. And I think either you or me, somebody called it. I can't remember exactly how it happened because I try to black that out. But, yeah, I think you said he's going to throw a pick, and it was a pick six on the first play, something like that. Yeah, we were getting ready to go to the Michigan tailgate, and we were watching it at Maddie's, and we watched the kickoff, and then, I yeah, I forget who said what, but then very first play, pick six, turned the TV off, went, to, <laughs> went and started drinking. Yeah, just, you know, so for people who don't know, my wife and I used to live in Michigan for a brief period, I think like six months or something like that. And it happened to be during football season. So, of course, I had to watch. I, I was at a Michigan tailgate. I had to be watch that game with a bunch of Michigan fans, and it was mis- It was the worst day of my life, I think. Anyway, number three, I have Camp Randall, Wisconsin. I really think the jump around thing is kind of cool. I think it gets people going. I Actually, I considered putting them maybe at number two, but I just couldn't do it because Wally used to live in Wisconsin. And he always had a knock on, like, Wisconsin students showing up to the game, like, midway through the second quarter. And I feel like to be that elite level, top two-ish stadium atmosphere, you got to have your people there right away. I mean, if you're missing the whole first quarter, that's kind of a problem. Number two, and I think this might surprise some people, is I have Ohio Stadium. I think... What? Yeah. I know. Shocking. I think night games at the shoe are electric. I think they're amazing. And even obviously Michigan games at noon, that that's amazing. They've been we've been doing big noon kickoffs here the last few years. Those usually get people going. But the reason I have them at number 2 is because Beaver Stadium, especially with the whiteout, I don't know if there's a better atmosphere. I mean, that is like amazing to me. That's I think that's awesome. So I just don't know if any stadium in the, maybe in the country, I don't know, but especially in the Big Ten, I don't think anybody can beat that. No, I actually agree. I think the only thing I would say devil's advocate again to do that is that we haven't been to Beaver Stadium also at the noon games when they're playing Illinois or Indiana. So you wonder how much difference there could be there. But there is nothing topping a whiteout, especially because now – they might not officially say it, but the whiteout is for Ohio State or Michigan. It is the biggest game of the year for that home fan base there in state college. And it's phenomenal. Even on TV, we keep talking about Hayden and I wanting to go to a whiteout for Ohio State and Penn State at some point. If we went to the one with the block kick, I don't think I could ever step foot east of Harrisburg ever again in my life. I already hate Philadelphia. I don't want to hate half of the state I love so much already. So that was tough, man. But Casey, take it away. You, you give us your top five. Again, work your way back from five to one. And let's hear what you have to say, man. All right. So I'm going to do my two top 
five lists of two different categories here. So just best stadium atmospheres for any game. Number five, I have Wisconsin. You know, like Hayden said, the biggest thing that sticks out to me is that their fans don't get there if it's a noon game until, you know, one o'clock. But a night game there is pretty sweet. Number four, I have Penn State just because there's too many times that I've seen them play a Rutgers or Maryland. And then in that like big section with the big press box, there's just a huge section with no fans. So that's why they're number four for me. Number three, I have Nebraska because they, I'm pretty sure they had the longest streak, longest sellout streak, right? For the longest time. So that's why I have them there. I have Ohio State at two just because in 2018, Ohio State was struggling to get people in the stands. I don't know if you guys remember that, but they had like 93,000, 95,000. Now, obviously, things have changed a little bit, but. For some reason, that kind of stuck out to me, and which is why I have Michigan at number one, because you won't have a game where it's under 109,000 people in there. But I'll go over to the more important list, the big game or the night game atmosphere ranking. So I still have Wisconsin at number five. The places in front of them are just better. Number four, I have Michigan. I've been to a couple night games there. It's, it's pretty sweet. It's a different feel. Number three, I have Ohio State. And I will explain that a little bit later as to why they're at number three. Number two, I have Iowa. And then number one, I have Penn State as well. And my reasoning for that, my thinking is when you get your schedule, right? First thing you look at if you're playing Penn State or Iowa is, oh, shit, is it home or away? It's just completely different playing at Iowa than having Iowa come to your team's stadium. Same with Penn State for some reason. But... Yep, I'll let you go, Wally. So I actually really took more of the Casey approach on this one with what you talked about. I took this as if this was the biggest game of the season for these teams. They're night games. So this is the optimal, which is kind of talking out of both sides of my mouth because of the bottom five, I'm imagining all these noon games, ugly Big Ten Network kind of games, where this now, I'm thinking ABC. I'm hearing either Kirk Herb Street or I'm hearing one of these big TV sets. Everything's crazy. So I'm going with that mentality going in. And I also have to point out, I left Ohio State off my list purely out of, I couldn't separate when I was trying to. And I kept wanting to put them at number one purely because I love to shoot too much. And I realized that's not really fair. So I just left them off altogether. So my five for you guys, I went with Nebraska as well. Casey touched on it. The sellout streak there. They have a lot of other really cool traditions as well where I think their first touchdown of the year is where they all release those red balloons into the sky. And I really don't even understand the purpose of it. it they're still kind of the new kid on the block, even though they are mega Nebraska. So that was Polluting a, the earth. Polluting the earth, exactly. They would have been higher, but this is a green podcast here. So they're five. Now we're going to go down to number four, Camp Randall. So I loved Wisconsin. I loved being there. I got the opportunity to go to a game in 2012, the year Ohio State went 12-0, and and they beat Wisconsin in overtime. Now, it was funny because it was a 2.30 kickoff, and I'm a pretty big dude. I love to drink beer. I love to eat food. Wisconsin is Wisconsin, man. Those people up there, you hear everybody joke around with the win or lose, we still booze. They take that serious. They don't, it's more of the experience. It's more of the 
get out, drink with your buddies. We'll jump around. We'll watch the band come out for their fifth quarter. It's one of the cooler traditions for bands in the Big Ten. So it's a really cool atmosphere. But at that 2.30 kick, it wasn't even the 11 o'clock like normal for them. They had half the stadium fill until midway through the second quarter. And when they finally showed up, Ohio State stopped scoring. They were up like 14-0 in that game, had all things going their way. And as soon as the fans show up, it's one of the toughest places to play in the country. But when you get them disinterested, you get them partying, if you can get up early, it's not exactly the toughest place to play. So for me, that's why I had them four. Then three, I went Michigan Stadium. I can't help but always think about that Denard Robinson or Devin Gardner. Was it Devin Gardner that played in the first night game against Notre Dame, or is it, was it Denard? Yeah, it was Denard. Yeah, that was... That, that uh, comeback was crazy. Yeah, because it was... Yeah, the Denard was the first ever night game there, right? Yep. It was an electric atmosphere on TV even, where I was... It was the first time where I'm like, wow, you know what? I never really put it together that Michigan doesn't have night games. And when they do, you could tell it was such a treat for the fans too. That when you get the big house under the lights, it still is a special place. Yeah, it might not be the loudest 112 purely in the architectural. You make a stadium out that way, kind of like Yale used to when they, I'm sure that was probably part of the inspiration for it, but it makes it a little different. But it's such a fun place to play. Michigan has their own great traditions, running out to the banner, all those things that makes it fun for a fan, whether you are a Michigan fan or not. I think that is why they have landed at three for me. Now, two. I have Kinnick as well, much for the same reasons that Casey says. If I see Iowa on Ohio State's schedule and I see them playing at the shoe, I'm like, sweet. Ohio State can beat them by 14 to 24 points. Feels good. You kind of reinsert your dominance a little bit. But when you see that's at Kinnick, oh man, I have the panic just come right to me where it doesn't matter how good we are. It feels like a trap game. It feels like a trap game no matter what. They could be a 8-3 and three Iowa team when you get them or whatever. And you go to Kinnick, they're on you. They, those sidelines, they're on the sidelines, those fans are. And even when you see the like Penn State won a few years ago on the last play of the game on a touchdown in the back of the end zone, he caught the touchdown, and I felt like half of the stadium was going to literally attack him right there. They were arm's length away. It just feels like a hostile place. But then you add in the cool little things like they wave to the the kids at that hospital, like Hayden mentioned. That's a really cool new tradition. A lot of times when these new traditions come out, you kind of feel like they're corny or they, they feel forced a little bit because you start saying the word tradition after a year, it doesn't feel real, but it's a really cool tradition. It has a lot of staying power. That'll be a lot of fun to see. And then ultimately, number one, we, we keep touching on it. It's no surprise. Beaver Stadium, the whiteout. It's one of the coolest things to see, whether you're there, whether you're watching on television, there's a an electricity, there's a there's something about it that just radiates that no matter how bad that Penn State team is, they're going to get or you're gonna get their best shot. Even last year when Ohio State played there, there was like five thousand people or whatever, maybe there wasn't even that. And it's still, there's something about that night atmosphere at Beaver Stadium that makes it tough to play. It's a it's a great atmosphere. I think it's without a doubt, one, two, three with the Ohio Stadiums, the Kinnicks, Michigans. But notice the common denominator. It's always going to be Beaver Stadium there. The only thing I'll say about Ohio Stadium, since I didn't put them on the list, is 
you wonder how much of those coming down in attendance numbers that you were mentioning, Casey, if the expectations for Ohio State football has almost done a disservice almost to the fans, where now you expect 12-0 and college football playoff every year. Why am I going to go out for noon and watch them beat Illinois 50-10 to when I can watch it from my couch, order a pizza, and have beer? You obviously see the full house with the big people or like the big schools coming in. But yeah, I, I don't I wonder if that has a little bit to do with that. I'd be interested to hear what you guys had to think. There you go, picking on Illinois again. Say something nice <laughs> about Illinois. The matte blue, purple, whatever helmets, those are pretty cool too. You just like their helmets, huh? Yeah, that's pretty much that's, my go-to for them. Yeah. No, I agree with everything that you were saying, Wally. As far, I mean, shoot, we could have a have a whole segment talking about it. Ohio State fans' expectations, but yeah, I, I don't really have anything else to say. I think that your list is pretty similar, and your your thinking was pretty similar as well. Hayden, anything else before we start throwing in into other news? Uh, yeah, thank God Ohio State doesn't play Iowa at all in twenty twenty one at all. So not worried about it. There was a little bit of me that really wanted to play them last year because that loss still like hurts. Like you said, the Purdue loss, that Iowa loss. Fun fact for you guys, Hayden and I were in class together at this point at Ohio State in the sports industry, and we would watch in our classes these EA 2014 like simulation games with the rosters, and we would convince ourselves somehow this was going to be a reflection when it's it's such a joke. But anyways, we watched the Penn State game, that comeback, and I'm a, a noted JT Barrett hater, and Hayden was like the number one guy in his corner, so I had to eat crow for like an entire week just for his first pass at Kinnick to be that pick six the following I wasn't happy by any stretch, but I felt vindicated, and that was an interesting time period. That's all I'll, I'll say about that. I, we could literally do a whole hour long podcast with the topic of JT Barrett. I, okay. So I was his biggest supporter, his advocate. I was in his, I was on his side. Now, now that he's gone, I'm not as, I'm still on his side, not as much, but that dude gets so much hate from Ohio State fan, it's it's unbelievable. All that dude did in his four years at Ohio State was win. That's all he did for four years was win. And I hear so many people talking about, well, he can't throw the ball 25 yards down the field. He can't do this. To me, I don't care. That dude, I, I wish I could, I could look it up. I, I want to know his record as a starting quarterback at Ohio State because he can't have more than... Six losses, right? Did he ever lose six games as a starting quarterback? Virginia Tech. Casey, feel free to jump in too when you have it. But Virginia Tech, then Iowa. Uh, Michigan State. When did, 2015. 2015. Oh, my gosh. that I blacked it out of my memory. That game did not exist. So I'm not going to yeah, talk that about was, it. That was brutal. Brutal. That I stayed especially up. Br- yeah, for you, Aiden. <laughs> I stayed up for literally like. 30 hours straight. I camped out at game day the night before and stayed up 
the whole thing went through the whole game day. Casey's girlfriend, Lauren, brought me a big, not a Big Mac, like a double cheeseburger or something and a blanket. And I stood out in line all day. I was in like the front row of game day. And then to lose like that, first of all, the weather was horrid. It was raining sideways. It was swirling. It was cold. And then to lose, I will never get out of my mind that field goal kicker doing his little... I that will never ever leave my mind. That that hurt me so much. I swear we're gonna be done talking about Ohio State in two seconds. The only thing I was to say is that that was such a fun environment going into that day too. I was also part of that up there at midnight waiting out for the college game day crew. I had my sign. I felt real high on life. I was so depressed after I ordered a Papa John's pizza and fell asleep before it got delivered. So the guy The poor guy had to come over, knock on the door, and my fat, drunk ass was up in bed, passed out, and I felt so bad. I literally had to go in the next day. I'm like, okay, who came over with the pizza? Here's the money. I'm sorry, guys. Here's the tip. But it was so, so bad. Casey, you're not the Buckeye fan here. Do you have any last thing? And we will move on. You have the final word. Wally, you're too nice, man. You went back and gave that boy his money. Wow. Shoot. That game, yeah, that game was terrible, but we didn't even end up counting. So, Clemson, right? Iowa. Is it only four? Hmm. I don't know. We'll think of it later. Get back to you. But, yeah, that's all I got on that. Yeah, it's a short number. And for the record, you're right. JT Barrett doesn't deserve the hate he gets from people like us, and it makes it tougher on him when you have immediately following Dwayne Haskins and Justin Fields. But we will switch gears now. We're going to jump into our topics today. Again, if you find any fun names for that last segment, let us know. We'll try to incorporate it if it makes sense because we need a name for this. We're going to do it every week. We have a different topic. We'll tease that at the end of the show. Now, we're going to jump into another team. We said something nice about Illinois before. Let's talk about something they enjoy. Oh, sorry, Hayden. You have your hand up. What's going on? I I hate – I know we said we're moving on, but I just looked up the record. He was 38-6 and as a starting quarterback. In 2014, he went 11-1. They lost to Virginia Tech, right? 2015, he only started five games. He went 4-1, and and they lost to Michigan State. 2016, he went 11-2, and and that had to have been Iowa and Oklahoma? No. Penn State and Clemson. Penn State and Clemson, and then 2017, 12-2. Yeah, that was Oklahoma and Iowa. So, 38-6 and six as a starting quarterback. All that man did was win. That's my last thing. Yeah, thank God for all the leadership. Just like tough Borland, thank God for those guys. Anyways, Illinois basketball now. Trent Frazier, he's returning. He's coming back with his additional year of eligibility. Unfortunately for Illinois fans, Kofi Coburn, hand up. I've been saying his name wrong for pretty much his entire career up until the Big Ten tournament, and it finally popped into my head that maybe I should say it the right way. Use your imagination how I and many other people were saying it. But I guess the question for us and for you guys here is simply, they're losing quite a few pieces this year. This felt like their window to win a national title this past year, and then unfortunately they lost to Sister Jean and Loyola Chicago. Now, with Coburn gone, 
and Fraser coming back. What do you guys want to think this team has, or what's their ceiling, I guess? Because you imagine they're probably going to be preseason 15 to 20-ish range, somewhere in that neighborhood. Do you think that they could outkick that coverage, so to speak? Or do you think that this is going to be a little bit of a comeback down to earth for Illinois? Yeah, so I think Frazier coming back uh, definitely helps. Uh, he averaged around 10 points a game last year. I only probably watched 10-ish of Illinois games, but it always felt like he had a bigger impact than the box score. Uh, you know, I don't know, his leadership. And anytime you can bring a quick guard back in the in the Big Ten is big time. But, yeah, losing Coburn is a big hit. And Io DeSumo, yeah, he was a good guard too. I think, you know, losing those two are big hits. And I, I just sure as hell hope they don't have another Coburn coming around. That that dude, he was massive, man. There was nobody in college basketball in the past 10 years that could guard that dude one-on-one. He, he was just massive. As far as expectations go, I think I like what uh, – it's Brad Underwood, right? Underwoods, yeah. I like what – He's doing at Illinois. They're kind of like the bringing a tough guy mentality to that team a little bit. And I think Frazier, he's the captain of that. So expectations, I would say a four or five seed. I think they're still going to be good. But, man, the Big Ten is going to be loaded again next year. So I think they can be in the top six of the Big Ten, I would say still. Hayden, you got anything for us here? Yeah. I think this is actually a really big deal for Illinois. One, because it's always great to have senior leadership at the guard position in college basketball. You can see how guards, and I know Illinois is kind of a bad example because they had a seven foot two monster, but having senior guards in college basketball can really dictate the pace of play. And that can, there was um, Kenny Smith. I was watching, you know, he's on TNT, TBS for the NCAA tournament. He always, and he repeated this multiple times during the tournament, that he would take great guard play over great post play 10 times out of 10 because just of they can control the pace of play. So I think getting him back is huge. Another thing, and I've been on this dude for the whole year, I think this guy is going to be a stud. My man. Andre Curbelo. I, I think that dude is going to be fantastic in the next two years. I I think he could be really good. So I really don't see – they're going to take a little bit of a step back. They're not going to be as good as they were this year, I don't think. But I still think that they're going to be in the top top five of the conference, I would say, which in the Big Ten is going to be – the Big Ten is going to be good, just like Hazy said. So being top five in, in that conference is is pretty good. Yeah, and and you also get to see, too, that in college basketball, you only need to be that four or five seed, and you can make a run if you have the right teams in front of you, the right matchups. And it is a shame for guys like Kofi Coburn that he was born 20 years too late. If he was around 20 years ago, he could have been a guy that go to that next level, go into the NBA, and be a legitimate force for anybody. But the problem is the game's changed so much at that level you have to wonder if he's going to be able to make that transition. I hope he does for his sake. He was a lot of fun to watch. I'm happy he's gone. I'll say that much as a Buckeye fan. He was very frustrating to watch. But this is, like you guys have been saying, bringing back a senior guard that can also be a forward at times when you try to go a little small, it's a big deal. I think they are going to be, like you guys said, right around that 
top five in a loaded Big Ten. And I know they've been disappointing in postseason play in the last, what, 10, 15, 20 years. But you imagine one of these years, it's going to all come together. Someone's going to be able to make that next step. And with guys like Curbelo, Plummer, Frazier, I think they can make it. And I think they have, maybe you guys would know better than me. I think Omar Payne, the guy that's stepping in for Coburn, I think he's a transfer from Florida. And they're really high on him as well. I don't know a ton about him yet. Imagine that we're going to see him early in the season against the nobodies, putting up numbers before he gets into Big Ten play. Do, do you guys know if I'm making that up? He, was he from Florida or am I just way off base? Yeah, I'm not too sure. Starting five next year is going to be Andre Curbelo, Alfonso Plummer, Trent Frazier, Jacob Grandison, and Omar Payne. So it's not the sexiest top starting five compared to last year, but it's more than good enough to make a little bit of a run in the postseason. Who knows, maybe some of these guys are able to take that next step and they are able to make Illinois more of a contender in conference than we are expecting at this point. Now, we are going to switch it over back to football a little bit. We talked about Memorial Stadium over in Nebraska here earlier. They held an open practice, not a spring game. They held an open practice for fans last week, which is something you don't really see even in non-COVID times. You don't usually see that from schools that are kind of a little bit more secretive, but I guess with a school like Nebraska that has had diminishing returns, even though they have sky-high expectations every year, maybe it's good for fan morale to get a little bit of a glimpse what do you guys think about them going into this next year? Do you, I mean, do you think Martinez is going to be able to make that next step? Do you think Scott Frost is finally going to make a little bit of a imprint on the Big Ten West? Or do you think it's going to be a little bit more of the same where Nebraska fans are going to be left a little bit disappointed come the end of the year? Yeah, first of all, I think as long as they did it safely, I think that's a really cool idea. I'm all for having more fan involvement, especially at a place like Nebraska, because we mentioned them earlier, they have some great fans, and the product on the field hasn't necessarily been up to what the fans want. So I think that's a really cool idea. Expectations for next year, I think it's going to be more of the same. I'm not really a believer in Adrian Martinez. I don't think he's going to take any sort of step forward that's going to make them some sort of contender in the West. So, more of the same. Scott Frost, man, I don't, I feel bad for him because he did a great job at UCF. But Nebraska is one of those teams, if this was 1990, that's a great place to be. But 2021, I, I feel bad for him. Yeah, I'm with you, Hayden. I thought it was pretty cool that they opened that practice. But I think it's just going to get him hyped up for another disappointment. Remember what we, not we, I was never on the Nebraska hype train, but remember what everybody got so excited about with Nebraska was when they played a close game at Ohio State and lost. That team was 4-8. and eight. I don't know why everybody thought that they could turn around, win the Big Ten West, and give Ohio State a shot at the Big Ten Championship. That just blew my mind that a 4-8 and eight team had such high expectations. But... Yeah, I mean, the spring game is cool. Or no, that was practice. I think their spring game is either this week or next week. I'm not too sure. May um, 1st. Okay, so next weekend. But yeah, I agree with Hayden. I think they'll be around 500 team. Five and seven is just looking too natural by Nebraska's name. 
But I, I, I don't know. How long do you keep Scott Frost for if, you know, if they go, let's say they go seven and five. How long do they hold on to Frost? Because you had Bo Pelini, right? Bo Pelini going nine and four or ten and three, and they canned him. So I don't know. I don't know what the expectations are as far as the administration there. Like, you know, with Frost being the Nebraska guy and whatnot, kind of Nebraska's Jim Harbaugh has a little bit longer release. But man, I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do after this year. I really like that you brought up Jim Harbaugh in Michigan because I feel like they have very similar identities as fan bases where you have been a national power for so long in your past that it's still expected to have the same. And unlike Michigan, Nebraska, you don't have that recruiting hotbed that Michigan still has in that area of the country. Nebraska, it's, I mean, how do you recruit an 18-year-old to go out to Lincoln? Like, what do you sell them on? You can't even sell them on the program so much anymore. I don't know. It's a little bit of a tough spot to be in. And when you pair that with, realistically, since they've been in the Big Ten, their biggest wins were they beat Ohio State in 2011, the year they went 6-7. and seven. For like the first time in like 100 years, they were under 500. And that's like a big thing. That was the Toby Gerhardt, or not Toby Gerhardt, Rex Burkhead game. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, Rex Burkhead went off against Ohio State. I think they were out 21, and they came back and won. Everybody's like, Nebraska is back. Then they went to the Big Ten Championship game, I believe in 2012, and lost by like 118 in Wisconsin, where the highlight for them was a block when they were down 31 in the second half, where the guy decleated, and that was the Nebraska highlight of the year. Like, great block, down 31 in the Big Ten Championship. Oh, that would be a penalty in 2021. I think amazingly enough, it was even a penalty then. And they're still like, hey, this is this is what we do here. We're Big Ten champs we're in, or Big Ten West champs or at that time, leaders or divisions, whatever it was. Leaders and legends, right? Yeah, leaders and legends. Sorry about that. Yeah, there we go. I'm falling apart on you. I couldn't remember that. That was such a stupid name for the divisions. Whatever. East and West. Let's go back. Last thing I'll say real quick. This is a gauntlet at the end of the year for Nebraska. This is so hurtful to look at the schedule for them because you have seemingly a, like a manageable start to the year where all that's going to happen is Nebraska fans are going to get built up to get torn down. And I hope that I'm wrong because this is a school and this is a fan base that is better for college football when they're good. But they start the year at Illinois, that dreaded place to play that we talk about so much. Then you have Buffalo, should start 2-0. Then this is a fun game they probably won't win, but they get back to that Oklahoma rivalry. They go to Oklahoma for a game, which is really cool. It kind of goes back to the Big 12 days. But then they they start the year with about six manageable games, and this is how they're going to end the year. November, this November stretch anyways. They host Ohio State, seemingly a loss. They go to Camp Randall, seemingly a loss. And then they host Iowa. There's a really good chance this Nebraska team could be something like a, I don't know, like six and two before a really disappointing end to the year yet again. And then it goes into what Casey said. This is the same place that ran Bo Pelini out of town. How long are they willing to give the leash for Scott Frost? Because he's an alumni and he's a former quarterback, does he get a little extra time? I hope he does. He seems like a great coach, but... Again, there's only so much you can do in Lincoln at Nebraska at this time. 
Before we change topics, do either of you have any final thoughts on that? No, sir. Well, then let's change it over now. We're gonna, we talked about it last week. We're going to go into a little bit of a draft preview here from a Big Ten perspective. Obviously, there's a lot of an Ohio State recruits, but we're not going to only harp on those guys. We will get that real quick here first from Hayden. Hayden, what about this Ohio State roster of these draft prospects? Who are you most excited to see go to the league? And don't say Justin Fields because we all know Justin Fields, obviously, we're excited to see where he goes. Give us some of the guys maybe that the national media or the national fan base won't know so much about. Uh, Wally's favorite guy, Tough Borland. I think he's going to be a great <laughs> I, I can't even say that with a straight face. Yeah, one of the guys that I'm actually really uh, looking to see where he goes is Baron Browning. I think that dude can be utilized in the NFL in, in such a better – I have say his defensive scheme just didn't fit him – didn't fit his strengths. And I think that an NFL team really could. His measurables that he's been putting up at the at the pro day and things like that have been very, very good. So I'm interested to see where he falls. Is he can he shoot up to be a second rounder? Is he somewhere in the third round? I think that he could be actually pretty good in the NFL. I, if he can get into the right landing spot. Yeah, that that's my biggest one. No, and that's a really good one to have. And you've seen the success, at least marginal success for the linebackers that have been coming out of Ohio State in the last 10 years. There's no reason to expect he won't be, at the very least, a very quality special teams guy and depth guy at linebacker. He should be fun to watch. Now, we will go to Casey. Let's hear about some other non-Ohio State guys from you before we ultimately go back to everybody for a potential sleeper in the Big Ten that we all might not be talking about. All right, so I got a few guys here. If I start talking too much, you just mute me or something. Pat Fryermuth is somebody that I want to keep an eye on. I felt like he was pretty much widely considered the one of, if not the best tight end in the country coming into last year. Obviously, then came Kyle Pitts to easily take over that throne. But he has the prototypical size and athleticism for a tight end in the NFL. And I think that you know, no matter who drafts him, he can make a long career out of it. The next one is Rashad Bateman from Minnesota. He had an outstanding 2019 season, averaging over 20 yards a catch. But I felt like he kind of took a step back in the shortened 2020 season, uh, you know, as did Minnesota. He has a first-round grade, though, still, according to CBS Sports. And he did run in a an impressive 4-3-9-40 during Minnesota's pro day. And speaking of fast, Rondell Moore. Woo! That boy. He intrigues me because if he was, God, Devontae Smith's size, I feel like we would be talking about him as one of the top four wide receivers in this upcoming draft. I mean, I, I just feel like he's got everything you want in a wide receiver except for the size. Does he, does he remind you of, like, a bigger Curtis Samuel? I, that, that, I kind of think that's a, something that he reminds me of. Who, Rondell Moore? Yeah. What? Rondell Moore's like five foot eight, dude. Yes. Uh, Curtis Samuel? Whoa. We, we're going to have to bring up Curtis Samuel's height and weight here. Because there ain't no way he's that small. <laughs> so, Curtis Samuel, 5'11", 195. Rondell Moore is... Listed at 5'9", which means he's actually probably 5'7". I'd like to see what his pro day height was. But 
I guess their playing style is is kind of similar, but I feel like we didn't really get to you know see the true Rondell Moore. I think in 2019 he played only a handful of games due to injury, and then last year he opted out. So yeah, I mean I could see how their skill sets would be similar, but in terms of size, I think I think Samuel's a little bigger. Um, another player I'm intrigued by. Real quick before you go into the next player. Uh, just in case you want to say anything else, Rondale Moore came out at 5'7", 181 at, for the NFL draft. All right. Well, there you go. Anyway, uh, another person I'm intrigued by is Sean Wade. I think he's very – I think he's an interesting prospect because had he left last year, he might have gone in the first round. But sliding him out to corner or outside corner just did not go as many probably thought. And CBS Sports has him rated as 138th best prospect. And that's even behind Ambry Thomas. I don't know if you guys know who Ambry Thomas is. He's a cornerback that opted out for Michigan last year. Who I cannot believe Ambry Thomas is very high. But he's interesting because we did see him succeed a lot in the slot as a, you know, before this past year. And the way the, 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 way the game is going in the NFL is much like college. You need that good nickel corner, you know. As far as where he gets drafted, though, that's the interesting part to me because you don't normally take a nickel in the first, I mean, maybe the second round, but that's why he's really interesting to me. And then the last guy, I'll touch on him real quick, is Cam McGrone from Michigan. I thought he could have been pretty darn good after the 2019 season he had, bothered by some injuries last year and – you know, just being on a terrible defense didn't really, you know, play in his favor either. But so, yeah, those are those are a few guys that I think are intriguing to me. Sean Wade is so intriguing just because, like you said, he can't play outside. And if teams are willing to accept that and play him truly as that nickel and slot corner, then he could potentially be a steal for a team in this draft. But if they are hell-bent on trying to pursue him as an outside guy, then he could be a, a type of player that doesn't see a second contract in the league. He's one of those guys that has such a wide range of what could happen. And it's a shame. I, you hate when you see players come back, especially in a year like this, and lose the draft position that he had. It's a lot of money that he probably lost by choosing to come back and lost another year on that body as well but I'll leave it at that you you touched on it very well there now a couple guys that I'm pretty intrigued by Pat Fryermuth from Penn State I think he's you got to see they turn out tight ends there as well they might not be the type of guys that are going to be the George Kittles of the world but they are very solid at what they do I mean you can see what Mike Kosicki is doing down in in Miami right now he is a guy that's only going to get you four or five hundred yards a year receiving. He's a solid blocker too. He's a guy that is a big body down there in the red zone. I think that there is a team that could utilize him and get, I don't know, three to five, maybe 600 yards a year in a good situation. So I think he would be a lot of fun to watch, especially with that big frame of his. Now, a couple other guys I do want to touch on real quick. Patty Fisher, linebacker of Northwestern. Another guy that had this been 12 months ago, we're talking about a early day two prospect here, but instead he kind of had moments where he was exposed a little bit this year with his speed, lateral quickness, 
And I think that's going to drop him into the late day three range. But he's the guy with the high, he's such a, a smart football player. He's got that football IQ that he could be a great depth linebacker as well in his own right. He's the type of guy that you would kill to have on your special teams unit. Guys smart like that. I think, who knows, and if he can get a step quicker in the league through, you know how hardcore these guys are with their regimented not only diets, but their workout plans, he could get a step quicker. And if he does, who knows, maybe he can be a guy that can step in if there's an injury and hold the spot down at linebacker. Now, otherwise, if I'm, I'm trying to avoid Buckeyes as best as I can here. Rashad Wild Goose out of Wisconsin. He was a guy that had moments where he struggled quite a bit in the last couple of years. He's not exactly the biggest guy. He's 5'11", but that was, again, listed before the actual pro day. I'm sure he's probably 5'10", maybe a little shy of that. He's not going to be the kind of guy that is going to step in and be a number one corner. But again, if maybe you're dealing with injuries, he's a more than capable guy. And plus, you have a name like Rashad Wild Goose. I can't help but root for you and like you. So that's a Wisconsin guy out there to keep an eye on for day three. I think he could be a potential steal for somebody. He has, again, you want to talk about football IQ. He's a really smart corner. They're not exactly known for the fastest defenders up there in Wisconsin. And he's not exactly too much different, but because he is able to be in the right situation, who knows, he can be a guy that in the right situation could at least have marginal success in the NFL. Now, before we change our transition here, let's look at a few sleeper guys now. Casey, I know that you are like me. You're also a big NFL guy, and that's why we're going to go more like this. Hayden's diehard college. He loves the NFL too. But he stepped aside for a second. So we're going to go to Casey here. Sleepers. Do you have, give us a list. I don't know, maybe two or three guys that you want to keep an eye on that you think maybe day two, day three, NFL teams can get a steal. Yeah, I've got three guys that I'm going to keep an eye on because, oh, for a variety of reasons. I got a little list here. Uh, Nico Collins is somebody that I'm going to keep an eye on. I think he's a sleeper. He's a big physical wide receiver, and he was wildly underutilized at Michigan. There were games where he'd put up big stats, and then there were games where he didn't even know he was playing. Ran a faster 40 time in his pro day than I expected. 4-4, four, 4-4 four, four, four something. And, and he's got great ball skills, man. That dude, I don't know. I might have seen him drop one ball, one or two balls while he was at Michigan. I just don't think that he's got that good of a grade because he doesn't have the stats to back anything up. And kind of with the NFL kind of transitioning to the smaller receivers, just like college game is, is why I feel like his draft grade isn't as high as what it what it would be, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Fun fact, I ran into Nico Collins at Panda Express when I lived in Michigan. So we're, you could say we're close. Nice, bro. <laughs> Another guy I got on this list is Shaka Tony from Penn State. He's a little undersized for – an edge rusher in the NFL, but he was really productive at Penn State. He totaled 20 career sacks and 28 and a half tackles for loss. You know, him and, gosh dang it, who was the uh, uh, Gross Matos, right? That combo a few or a couple years back was, was deadly. And I, I'm a big guy. I'm a big believer. And if you play at an elite level in college, then – more times than not transitions more to the NFL than let's use Trey Lance for an example. 
I'm not a big South Dakota State guy being drafted in the top five because of the competition that you play. I believe that the competition that you play can predict better success in the NFL. That's just my opinion, though. Lastly here, I got Greg Newsome, quarterback from Northwestern. He's got a late first-round grade, but he only played in four games in 2020 and still totaled nine pass deflections. He's got really good size and is a pretty good athlete, and I think he's got a chance to be the third-best corner in the draft behind uh, Sertan and J.C. Horn. Wally, who you got, man? Who are they sleeping on? It's like you stole my list. If you can see this right now, Nico Collins and Shaka Tony right there. Two of my guys I had. So I'm not going to go too much more. I completely agree. I think both of those guys are going to be the type of guys in day two, even early day three that we see go out and get drafted and have productive NFL careers. Shaka Tony, I mean, he's going to be right in that range. I'm a Raiders fan, so I think of Max Crosby in that late day two, early day three, where purely because people are a little hung up on size for him, they're not going to be as high on as some of the guys in the first day, day and a half of the draft. Now, what I will say about Nico Collins in Michigan is not necessarily a player themselves remind me of each other, but what did we do with Donovan Peoples-Jones? It was that, wow, you know what? He really didn't produce as well as we expected at Michigan. Therefore, we're going to assume he doesn't translate well. And then look what happens when he went to Cleveland. They found or they knew what he was good at. And they use that in the game plan. They're not trying to make him into anything that he isn't. And I think that if Nico Collins finds a system that is willing to accept his role, I think that he could be a very productive NFL player in his own right. Now, I have to bring up one Ohio State Buckeye right now. I tried to avoid as long as I could, but now that Casey stole like 90% of my guys here, I have to go off the board. Trey Sermon's a guy that going into... The final couple weeks of the regular season, I don't feel like a lot of people outside of Ohio State or Big Ten country or Oklahoma fans know too much about him. And he went on a very similar to Ezekiel Elliott in 2014 run to end the year. And had he been healthy and not gotten hurt on the first snap of the national title game, if he had 100, 150 yards in that as well, I think we're talking about him as a potential third running back off the board after Travis Etienne and after Najee Harris. Now, because we didn't get to see that, it's understandable that you get hung up as a scout that he wasn't exactly the most productive early in the year. He wasn't as productive as we would have hoped to see if he was at Oklahoma. And then if you're playing behind Master T, you have guys out there wondering, hey, what did these Ohio State coaches see that we're not seeing right now? So I think that someone is going to get Trey Sermon to be a functional spell back in the league. I think he's going to work really well in passing situations as well. So for me, Trey Sermon's a guy that I'd be fired up if not, I guess, with the Raiders anymore because they signed Kenyon Drake. But for a team out there that needs that backup or that second tier running back to kind of get 10 to 15 touches a game, I think someone's going to be very happy with the production he will bring to the NFL level. Now, last thing we want to talk about in the NFL draft perspective before we transition, and this is going to be a little bit more up Hayden's alley here. Justin Fields yesterday came out that he has been dealing with epilepsy. It seems like for whatever reason, draft scouts are really trying to, not only draft scouts, media in general, are trying to tear down 
Justin Fields is a prospect a little bit more than I can understand. Do you think that this epilepsy report is going to hurt his draft stock? And if it does, how far do you see him falling? Where do you think he ends up? Do you think that San Francisco does pull the trigger on him? Or do we see him trickle down a little bit on draft boards? I don't think this will impact anything at all. But that's because I think I'm set. I'm locked in where I think he's going to go. First of all, this might be one of the better kept secrets out there. I mean, he's been dealing with this for how long and no one found out until this week. I mean, that's pretty crazy with the amount of can't, you know, just everything that these from high school to college that these prospects do now. I it's kind of crazy to me that we haven't heard any even any sort of rumor or anything like that of this going on. With that being said, I am locked in with San, San Francisco. I think that's where he's going to go. If they don't take him and they take somebody like a Mac Jones, I think that would be the biggest mistake that a franchise can make. That to me, that would be borderline insane. What kind of qualities do you see that Fields has over a Mac Jones outside of his athleticism? Well, I, I don't know how you can say outside of his athleticism though, because I think that is a huge part that makes him the prospect that he is. So his ability to extend plays and use his legs, I think, is one of the key reasons why he I mean, he's an athletic freak. I think that's why he is so high up on people's boards is because he can do it all. He can he can throw it, but he can also extend plays and use his feet to take off. You're you're not seeing that from Mac Jones. You're right. I guess I should have phrased it a little bit better. With Shanahan and what he typically – all right, so with Shanahan, it's – I've heard two different stories. What he would like would be a Justin Fields, a Trey Lance that can, you know, run the ball. But what he's had in his past, like Garoppolo, I think Mac Jones fits that prototype a little bit better than uh, a Fields or a Trey Lance who is – I'm hearing if it's not Mac Jones, it's Trey Lance at three. I just think, look at who Mac Jones was throwing the ball to. You could say the same thing, I guess, where you could say the same thing with Ohio State. Fields was throwing to Olave and Garrett Wilson. But you had a guy in Devontae Smith that was open by 10 yards every play. Him and Jalen Waddle were electric. And I just think with that receiver, with those receivers that he had, it, it makes things so much easier on him. Now, you can kind of say the same thing with Ohio State. But, I mean, Devontae Smith was on a different level, and I think that can that really helps prop up Mac Jones. Well, one thing I'll say, too, about this is that I feel like the difference here is, I guess, if you are Shanahan and, and Lynch out there, do you want that X factor that if he does put it all together, he can avoid taking those sacks? Because that's Justin Fields' big hang-up is that he kind of, goes all or nothing a lot of times where he'll hold on to the ball and take sacks instead of throwing it away. We saw only in a couple games in that Indiana and Northwestern game where he was a little rattled early on and made some poor decisions. But I'm not going to hang up on just those two. Mac Jones, though, is the kind of guy that does exactly what he's asked to do. And he doesn't he, – he's not going to be the one like Justin Fields. He's going to scramble and get you 25, 30 yards if a play breaks down. But Mac Jones is also very responsible with the ball. He'll throw the ball away if nothing's there. It really depends on what you're looking for out of a quarterback. 
What's confused me most of all in this is that Trey Lance somehow has avoided really any of these kind of worries from NFL GMs, at least to the public, that Casey was talking about, North Dakota State. I mean, you're only playing FCS-quality guys all the time, and what a lot of people keep forgetting, too, is he's really green. He's only thrown like 300-something balls at the college level. He only threw, get a load of this, he only threw like 100 passes at the high school varsity level. This is a guy that's going to get drafted in the top 10 in the NFL, throwing under 500 passes from high school varsity to the NFL. And that's wild to me that he's kind of avoided a lot of the worries and criticisms, whereas it's turned into Justin Fields versus Mac Jones, and we're just tearing the two down when there's a very good chance they're both quality NFL quarterbacks. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Wally. I didn't know that stat about Trey Lance. That's crazy, though. The thing that I've been hearing is Trey Lance's upside, his upside. And I guess we can kind of, with Mac Jones and Justin Fields, have we seen their highest potential? Probably not, but we've seen them already at an elite level against elite competition, whereas we haven't seen, you know, Trey Lance is so raw, we haven't seen him at his at an elite level or against elite competition. So just betting that he continues to develop is, I don't know, I guess that's the reason why there's people considering. I, I would not take Trey Lance over Justin Fields. The Mac Jones, Justin Fields debate, you can, you know, beat it till the cows come home, but I, I just can't see Trey Lance going over Justin Fields. I'm sure you guys have heard that joke before where it's the, what would you rather have, the boat or what's in the box? And the joke being the, oh, wow, what's in the box? It could be anything. It could even be a boat. It's the same thing that we're dealing with with Trey Lance, where it's like his top end could be elite, but we've seen that elite play from Mac Jones. We've seen the play from Justin Fields, where you have to wonder, is it better, like the quote-unquote safe pick, to go with one of these established guys? It's so easy to knock players, and I don't know why we love to do it so much, where Mac Jones, look at all these NFL players around him. Well, they have an NFL quarterback throwing them the ball. Well, I mean, it's the same thing. Like It helps to have a really good team around you. And I'm not going to completely sit here and say, these guys don't deserve it because, what, they, they had one or two bad games in their career. This is the best quarterback class we've probably seen since that, what, 04 or whatever with the, the Eli Manning, Phillip Rivers, Big Ben. And then even before that, you can probably go all the way back to the 84 draft with Jim Kelly, Dan Marino, John Elway. It's It has the potential to have three, four, even potentially five quarterbacks out of this draft class be very good quarterbacks for a long time. Something that the next generation of football fans, they're going to grow up with as we're now old men seeing all of the childhood quarterback heroes of ours retiring. I think that all three of these guys could be good. I'm just higher on Justin Fields. Maybe I'm too biased. I need to remove myself. But I just think that whoever goes number three to San Francisco will have the best career. And I'm talking about all of these quarterbacks purely because I love Kyle Shanahan. Awkward love affair. I think the guy is an offensive guru, genius, and he's a ticking time bomb to win a Super Bowl. He almost got it done with Jimmy G at quarterback. He almost got it done in Atlanta, and it wasn't his fault. A lot of people try to associate him. He's not coaching the defensive side of the ball there. The offense looked very good. Things didn't go well at the end. 
I'm not going to entirely blame him on it. I think whoever goes number three is going to have the best quarterback career in the NFL. That's my take for you guys today. Yeah, I completely agree with you there, too, because Shanahan already said that, you know, they're going with Garoppolo. So they're going to get that year of experience under sitting under Garoppolo. I can kind of see it like a Favre Rogers kind of deal. And yeah, that defense is something else. I hope they can stay healthy because shoot, man, you're right. Uh, in terms of winning games, whoever gets drafted at number three has the best shot. Well, and that is going to bring us to the end of another episode of Pigskins and Nylon. We've been in contact with some potential guests, so keep your eyes open for that over these coming weeks. We're off the next week here for the NFL Draft. I'm a degenerate, and I go whenever they travel around, so I won't be here. And since I'm editing, we're going to take a week off. But when we come back on May 7th, we'll have another edition of whatever you want to call that segment at the beginning where we're ranking things. Casey had a really good idea that we are going to rank the most impressive five seasons of a Big Ten team since 2000. Now, the only stipulation for this is that we are only allowed to have a season from one school each. So you will have five different schools for our five different records going into this. But we love your guys' feedback, so please keep the comments coming. Have something you want to see us talk about, let us know. Have something you want us to do differently, again, let us know. Make sure to give us a follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at P&NPod for all three of those. That is P&NPod. Casey, Hayden, do you guys have any last thoughts for us? Yeah, just thank you to everybody that listened to our first episode. I think it did a lot better than what we kind of anticipated. Follow us on all the social media. We try to post things on there. But yeah, see you pretty boys in two weeks my final thought same thing casey thanks to everybody who listened follow us on social media and one thing i am fired up about tomorrow friday somebody scheduled a baseball game at in usv in mcguffey and if anybody wally this doesn't make sense to you mcguffey is about an hour trip on a bus from Arcadia. So we got to go right after school to McGuffey, play a baseball game, which for one, they are, they are terrible. Two, we are terrible. And then we have to drive an hour back. I might not get home from this game until nine o'clock. Like it literally, I, I saw this on the schedule and it ruined my Friday. Well, and what people don't understand either Northwest Ohio I didn't realize until I went up and visited you guys a few years ago, you just turn off the highway and then there's just roads. Like you just turn on to the highway. Like Northwest Ohio is another world, Midwest to a T. I'm sure a lot of the listeners will, will understand that a lot better than me with the hills and shit here. But I, good for you. Good for you going, dealing with all that. Otherwise, check us out next week as we all have probably five Illinois teams in our best most impressive seasons in the last 20 years. You guys take care. We will see you on May 7th for episode three of Pigskins and Island.